thank you all so much for being here with us this morning. Uh, we had a wonderful time here at church last week at Easter, and I kind of want to give you all an update of where we're headed. Uh, this morning, I want to bring a message from John chapter 2. As you can see, I plan on bringing uh, another message from John 4 next week. Look at these first couple of signs uh, that Jesus did. Um, we're not going to get in a, another long series. Um, with This last fall, Cheryl and I have been here at Faith Bible Church 25 years, and uh, the elders decided to give us a sabbatical. Maybe just wanted to get rid of us for a while. I don't know what, but uh, they've given us some time off. So the last Sunday we'll be here this spring will be May 21st, and the next Sunday we'll be back here. I'll be in the pulpit. It will be the second Sunday of August. And uh, during that time, we're going to go over. I'm going to go speak in Germany at a prophecy conference there. Then we're going on this Journeys of Paul trip with some of you here from the church, with Dallas Seminary, Denton Bible Church. So rather than coming back after we're in Germany and just heading back a few days later, we're just going to stay over there, Cheryl and I will, and Germany and a few other places before we head over and meet the group in Istanbul for the Journeys of Paul trip. And we'll be back here a few weeks, and we're going to go to New Mexico for a few weeks. And I've got a, a growing box of books that I'm going to be taking out there with me to just uh, do a lot of reading and a lot of study during that time. So anyway, just want to update you all on, on where we're going to be during that time. But uh, in the meantime, we're going to be with you here for a few more weeks. And uh, this morning we're in John chapter 2, if you want to turn there with us, John chapter 2. A lot of you probably been to, to many weddings, you know, 25 years here at the church. I've performed a lot of weddings. I've been in a lot of weddings. And there's a lot of uh, memorable, sometimes embarrassing moments that happen at weddings. I'm sure all of us have probably been at a wedding where a groomsman passed out. You know, it's always been interesting. Uh, bridesmaids never pass out. But a groomsman, for some reason, I've been at several weddings where they just hit the deck, and it's a, it's a memorable experience. Um, one wedding that I was actually in, I was the best man for this fellow years ago before I was married, and um, the pastor asked him and his, him and his wife-to-be about 30 minutes before the ceremony about the marriage license. And he looked at the guy and said, what marriage license? And we all thought he was just kidding, but he was serious. He didn't know you had to get a marriage license. So that threw everything into disarray for the next little bit to figure out what to do. Um, I did a wedding one time where the mother of the groom was 45 minutes late to the wedding, and we had to start an hour late to the wedding. So that was a very memorable um, experience. Uh, probably one of my favorite ones, though, uh, one of my friends when I was in college, a guy named Jack O'Brien, he got married up in Tulsa, and Jack was a, a big guy, a weightlifter, a bodybuilder, and when we got our tuxes, his pants were just skin tied. He hadn't tied them on before the, before the day of the wedding, and they were so tied, and he remembered he's going to have to kneel at the altar at one point, and he kept being worried that his pants were going to split in the back. And uh, so the guy who's the best man, a guy who's a guy named Stan, um, I didn't know this, but I was standing right next to him. He was the best man. And when they got ready to kneel at the altar, he'd heard Jack say that, and he'd get, found a few pieces of paper. And when Jack kneeled down there, he ripped this paper. And so Jack thought the back of his pants had blown out. And so he was kneeling down there the whole time, like pulling his coat down, and squirming around and all. That was a memorable moment in a wedding. So some of you may have some that are even better than that. But... Uh, but 2,000 years ago, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee uh, that had its own memorable moment. And let me read our text for us this morning, John 2, 1 through 11. And on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. 
Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who'd drawn the wine knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Well, so reads God's word. When you look at the Gospel of John, many of you are familiar with this, but in, in the first 11 chapters, there are seven signs in John's Gospel. And it tells us here in verse 11, this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did. Now later, there's the resurrection of Jesus, there's the catch of fish in John 21. But John in chapters 1 to 11 shows seven of our, a string of pearls, if you will, that disclose to us, us. John 13 to 21 then is called uh, the book of glory. Now, the only word that John uses in his gospel for the miracles of Jesus is the word signs. Uh, this word means to signify or to make uh, something known, full of meaning. Um, I like to call a sign, it's a miracle with a message, or it's a miracle with a meaning. In other words, the, the miracle itself is literal and it's real, but it points beyond itself to something of greater significance, some truth beyond itself. So the crucial thing is not the miracle, even though that's important, but it's the lesson to be learned from the miracle. It's like when you're driving down the road and you're looking for your exit, you, know, you don't get all enamored at the sign, but you look at what the sign is pointing to. It's the same way with these signs in John's Gospel. Now, the first sign of Jesus is found here in John 2, 1 to 11. And think about this. It had been hundreds of years since the Jewish people had seen a bona fide miracle from God. I mean, miracles just happen all the time it's about our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the things that, that people always ask about this miracle, though, is what is the significance of this sign? What is the, the message behind this miracle? And there are a lot of different answers that are given. Some people will say this is the first sign Jesus did because it shows that Jesus hallowed marriage and family life, and he wanted to do that at the beginning. I mean, it's certainly true that our Lord hallows marriage and family. In fact, someone has uh, said years ago, make sure you invite Jesus to your wedding, and I like that. Uh, make sure you invite the Lord Jesus to your wedding. That's certainly part of it. Some say this is to show that Jesus approved of festivities and parties. In other words, Jesus wasn't some kind of a, a party pooper or something like that. I think Jesus certainly was filled with joy and enjoyed festivities and a good time. I mean, it shows uh, some will say, well, the focus of this is Jesus to show Jesus is the creator. And I think that's certainly part of it as well, as he makes water into wine. Some will say it's to show that Jesus is full of grace. Remember Moses' first miracle was turning water into blood, which was judgment. Whereas here, Jesus, his first sign is water into wine, which is a sign of grace. Um, Catholics, Roman Catholics, often appeal to this story to show the power of Mary's intercession. So you go to Mary and ask her to ask Jesus to do something for you if you really want to get it done. Now, discarding that final one, uh, the first four of these statements really about this miracle, I think, are true, but they don't provide the real significance of this sign. Also, as we go through this miracle, there's a lot of questions that have to be answered. Did Jesus make real wine, or did he just make grape juice? 
Um, why did Jesus speak to his mother the way he did? He says, woman, what do I have to do with you? If you're a young person, that's not the way you want to talk to your mother, right? We need to understand what did Jesus mean by this. And then why is this the first sign that Jesus did? Now, all of those questions are answered when we discover the real significance of this miracle. Now, to help us discover that, let's begin and just kind of set the scene. Notice it says, and on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Uh, John's gospel focuses a lot, if if you'll uh, notice, on the first few days of Jesus' life or ministry and the last few days of his ministry. John chapter 1 and 2 here, just a few days. And then, of course, chapters 13 to 21 are that final week of his life. You'll notice in uh, 129 it says the next day. Uh, 135 says the next day. Down in chapter 1, verse 43, the next day. Now it's on the third day. So this is the third day after the previous scene, after Philip and Nathaniel were called by Jesus. And it's about 75 miles from where he called Nathaniel and Philip to Cana, so it's probably about the time it took them to get there. So the scene has shifted now up into the northern part of Israel, to Galilee. Now the place here is called Cana, or Cana. When you go to Israel today, you go by some ruins near Nazareth, about nine miles to the north, and often will be pointed out that this is where they believe that ancient Cana was. It's interesting, in the previous context, Jesus had called Nathanael. And remember, uh, in verse 50, in the previous uh, chapter, he says to him, Because I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And then the next place they go is Cana, which was Nathanael's hometown. And I always wonder here if Jesus isn't saying, Nathanael, you think that was a big deal. We're going to go to your hometown, and you're going to see an even greater uh, sign that I'm going uh, to bring about. Now, the next thing we see here is the party. The occasion for this sign was a wedding uh, and the wedding feast or the wedding banquet, kind of like the reception that we have after a wedding. It's interesting to me, the first sign that Jesus did was at a wedding, which is life's gladdest hour, And then his last sign in John 11 was at a funeral of Lazarus, which is life's saddest hour. So he starts with a wedding, he ends with a funeral. But but a wedding in that day was a major event in first century Judaism. Here's a great quote I ran across about weddings from that day that really helps us grasp this. It says, The wedding celebration was considered to be the most grand event in life, especially among the poor. Typically, the Hebrew wedding ceremony took place late in the evening following a feast. After the ceremony, the bride and groom were taken to their home in a torch-lit parade complete with a canopy over their heads. They were always taken along the most circuitous, circuitous route possible so everyone would have the opportunity to wish them well. Instead of a honeymoon, they had an open house for a week. How would you like that? They were considered to be king and queen and actually wore crowns and dressed in bridal robes. And their word was considered to be law. Think about this. In lives that often contained much poverty and difficulty, this was considered the supreme occasion. Many would plod all the way through life without ever again having a celebration like this. So in many ways, this was the greatest event in their lives uh, for these families and these couples. 
So everything had gone as contracted. Back in that day, the two families entered into a contract and a betrothal period. The betrothal period had ended. The groom had gone and gotten his bride at the bride's house. She had been presented to him. They've made their way back now to the groom's house, to his family's house for this marriage feast, and they could last up to a week long. And back in that day, the groom's family paid for everything. Now, I've got two sons, so I'm glad that tradition has changed. And uh, for those of you that have two or three or more daughters, when it comes to paying for the weddings, good luck is all I've got to say on that. But I'm glad in that sense that I've got my two boys. But, but it seems like the, that this family was very close to, to Mary and Jesus. And it seems as we read through this that Mary may have had some kind of a catering role involved in this because she's concerned with what's happening. So that's the scene here for us. Then a major crisis arises, and I call this the situation. Verse 3, and when the wine gave out. Now the problem for this family here is the family of the groom, the wine runs out. Now this was a humiliating social faux pas in that day. Uh, The groom's family could actually be sued by the family of the bride for failing to live up to uh, their contracted responsibility. And and in a small village, like these villages were small places in Galilee, this could stigmatize this couple and this family for the rest of their lives. Everybody would remember for, for many, many years to come, decades, that's the family where the wine ran out at the wedding feast. So Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Now, it's interesting in this passage as well, Joseph isn't there. Um, Joseph's never mentioned after the birth narratives of Jesus, so uh, we're certain that he'd already died younger in Jesus' life at some point. Also, John never refers to Mary as Mary in his gospel. He just always calls her uh, the mother of Jesus. And she comes to Jesus and says they have no wine. Now, since her husband is deceased and probably has been for a while, and Jesus is the firstborn son, she's probably been relying upon Jesus a lot throughout her life as the firstborn male in the family. So she comes to Jesus and says they have no wine. Now, I think, and many commentators agree with this, that Mary was coming to Jesus expecting him to do a miracle. I said, well, why would she be expecting that? He'd never done one up till this time yet. Well, she knew better than anyone who Jesus really was. I mean, Mary believed in the virgin birth, right? She's the one who gave birth to Jesus. Uh, She knew that he was supernatural, that he was God in human flesh. Uh, She'd heard the things said by the angel Gabriel and by the shepherds and by Simeon when he was born. And, And since Jesus, you'll notice now, when he comes to this wedding, he's got five or six of his disciples now. So he shows up with this group of followers. So in her mind, he's beginning now his ministry. And so she's calling upon Jesus, do something dramatic and and supernatural here to solve the problem. So she tells Jesus they have no wine. And Jesus, I think, senses that she is trying to get him to do something here because he says, woman, what do I have to do with you? Now, the word woman here was actually a term of respect or affection. It's the word gunai here, and we would translate it uh, like ma'am today or or madam or lady. So, again, it's kind of mistranslated here. You know, calling someone woman today is not uh, considered certainly a term of affection or intimacy. So Jesus is not being disrespectful. And when he says, "What what do I have to do with you, literally that means what to me and to you. It's an expression that kind of asks, what do two parties have in common? It has the effect of kind of disengaging or distancing two people. 
And and what Jesus is telling his mother is, look, earthly relationships are no longer going to control my actions. His ministry now has officially begun, and Mary now will relate to him as her Messiah, no longer as uh, his mother. So everything now from this point on, even family ties, have to be subordinated to his divine mission. And Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Now five times in John's gospel, he's going to say that. Then three times near the end of the book, he says, my hour has come. But what Jesus is saying here, that Mary's trying to get him to do something huge and, and you know, maybe public to show who he is, Jesus is saying to his mother, don't rush me. I live now in, in accordance with a heavenly timetable that's established uh, by the Father. My, my hour uh, has not yet come. Now, notice Mary didn't take offense to what Jesus said because in verse 5, she said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, that is a basic principle in the Christian life that all of us ought to live by. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, you do it. Or whatever he tells you not to do, don't do it. I mean, that's a, a great principle for us to live by. As we read the Word of God, whatever the Word of God tells us to do, uh, to do it. Now, that brings us to the sign. And it says in verse 6, Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. Now, we'll talk a little bit later about the significance of these being for the Jewish custom of purification. But six large uh, stone water pots... These held probably 18 to 27 gallons each, about 120 to, some believe, up to 160 gallons of water. Now, someone once said, that's a lot of water. It's almost enough water for a teenager to take a shower. I mean, that, that's 160 gallons, a lot of water. And again, it's used here for ritual cleansing. It's what these stone water pots are used for. Now, Jesus says to them, fill the water pots with water. And notice they filled them up to the brim. And that that point is made by John because that rules out any idea of any kind of trickery or sleight of hand. In other words, you know, if you just kind of filled it up and there's some gap there, somebody could come and put something in it or some kind of trick. It's filled to the very brim. Rules out any kind of trickery, any kind of sleight of hand. Now, all of this water is instantly turned to wine, but you notice it doesn't even tell us that Jesus even said anything just said they filled them to the brim and he said draw some out take it to the head waiter and they take it to him and he drinks it and he finds out that it's a great quality of wine so there's no record here really even of the miracle when it happens or that Jesus says anything he may have said something he may have just thought it and the water immediately turns to wine and all that water is turned to wine and this would be depending on how much was there about 2400 one cup servings of wine so a lot would be left over. And so what a wedding gift it was that Jesus gave to this couple because it would provide them for money for some period of time after this as they were able uh, to sell this wine. And it's a beautiful picture of how our Lord always provides for us far more than enough. He gives us more than we need. Now, this does show here that Jesus is the Creator. And some water becomes wine. There's no planting, no ripening of grapes, no harvesting, no fermenting. All of that process is contracted in just to a second of time as Jesus makes this wine. Here's the way Charles Ryrie says it. He says, The miracle was a spectacular act of creation. It was not simply a matter of speeding up a process that had been going on. It was accomplished in a moment without grapes, sun, or time. 
Of course, it was a miracle that contained the appearance of age. The wine seemed to have come from grapes that grew and matured and were picked and pressed over a period of time. The actual age of the wine was only minutes. The apparent age was a season of growth and harvest. So it shows clearly here that Jesus is God, that He is the Creator. Now, one question that always comes up here in connection with this is, did Jesus make real wine or just grape juice? The word that's used here, the word oinos, is a word for wine. Also down in verse 10, the the head waiter says, Every man serves the good wine first. When men have drunk freely or literally have become drunk, then that which is poorer, you've kept the good wine until now. Well, you can't get drunk on Welch's grape juice, right? So the word means wine. This man refers to people getting drunk at these wedding feasts. So Jesus made real wine. Now, two things we always have to remember about this, of course. The Bible always forbids drunkenness. The Bible doesn't forbid uh, taking alcoholic beverage, but it does forbid drunkenness. We also have to remember that wine in that day was very diluted. It was basically like wine today, and they would cut it somewhere between one-third and one-tenth. It was cut. So it was uh, something less than alcoholic content, something probably far less even than American beer. And undiluted wine, you read in the Old Testament sometimes, you'll read about strong drink. That's wine that had not been diluted. And that was looked upon less favorably by the Jewish people. But anyway, Jesus says, take some of this to the head waiter. And we have then the comments of this head waiter. The head waiter probably was kind of combined responsibilities of kind of like the head waiter and, and kind of like a master of ceremonies for the week. And when he says in verse 10, every man serves the good wine, and when men have become drunk, then that which is poorer, his comment is just stating what normally happened, not necessarily what was happening at this wedding. So it's not necessarily saying people were getting drunk at this wedding, but this is something that would often happen. So people would serve generally the good wine first, and then when people were feeling pretty good, they'd bring out the, the dollar a gallon stuff you know, near the end. And so he says, you have saved the very best uh, for the last. Now, what a story this is and what a sign uh, this is that Jesus performs. Now, that brings us to the significance of this. John designates this miracle as the first sign that Jesus did. Now, just a little aside for a moment. There are a lot of apocryphal gospels and apocryphal writings out there that say Jesus did miracles when he was a child. We'll have all kinds of wacky things, you know, that Jesus did as a little boy, miracles that he performed. This is telling us this is the first sign that Jesus did. So that uh, uh, shows us that, that those uh, former writings, that what they're saying is not legitimate. This is the first sign Jesus does. I was reading D.A. Carson's commentary on John this week, and he makes the statement that down in verse 11 when it says this was the beginning of his signs or the first sign, that word can also carry the idea of primary This was the primary sign that Jesus did. So it's not just first in time or the beginning, but this is the primary sign of Jesus. So if that's true, what is the significance of this? If it's the primary sign, what does it mean to us? Because remember the word sign tells us there's a message behind the miracle. There's something greater than the miracle itself here. It says in verse 11, Jesus manifested His glory. Now, there's significance in this miracle, I think, in two ways. First of all, to the nation of Israel at that time, the people that Jesus was among. The wedding feast and wine pictured the coming kingdom, the messianic kingdom. 
that future kingdom that we're still waiting for when Jesus is going to come back to this earth. By this sign, at a wedding feast, producing, taking water and making it into wine, Jesus announces that He is the Messiah of Israel, that He's the one who's capable of ushering in the prophesied kingdom. You can see why this is the primary sign of Jesus, right? I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's here. I'm the one who can bring... Uh, this prophesied kingdom. Jesus is the messianic bridegroom. The kingdom is often pictured in the Old Testament as a banquet, especially a great wedding feast. I mean, even Jesus himself will make statements like, uh, the, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast which a father gave for his son. So Jesus pictures it that way. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 pictures the church in heaven married to the Lord Jesus. And after we're married to Him, it's going to spill over to earth in the millennial kingdom. And that's going to be the marriage feast of the marriage of the Lamb. So the kingdom is often pictured as a banquet. Also, the kingdom age is often pictured in terms of wine. If you go back in your Bible to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter uh, 25. Isaiah chapter 25 and, and verse 6. Isaiah chapter 25 and verse 6 says, And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. It's talking about the city of Jerusalem. And I take that literally. There's going to be a, a messianic banquet in the future. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. On this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all the peoples, even the veil which is stretched over the nations. Then notice he will swallow up death. The Lord God will wipe away tears from their faces and so on. It's looking at uh, the future age in this kingdom age. So wine is a frequent description of the Old Testament time when the promises to Abraham will be fulfilled. We looked at this actually just a few weeks ago in our study of Joseph, but back in Genesis 49, when God is uh, giving the promises to the 12 tribes there through their father Jacob, and it comes to the tribe of Judah... And, of course, Judah is the tribe the Messiah will come from. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says in uh, verse 10 of, of uh, Genesis 49, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Shiloh is a messianic term. It means he whose right it is. And to him shall be obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, notice and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. The very first, one of the first prophecies of the coming of Messiah mentions wine at least three different times. So Jesus, when he comes to a wedding feast and he turns water into wine, it's a sign to the nation of Israel, your Messiah is here. The one who's going to bring the kingdom is here. The, the Messianic bridegroom has come. And so this gives significance here to the lapse of wine because not only was this a gross social error, but it was a picture of the fact that Judaism was now becoming obsolete. The old wine had run out. And Jesus is bringing in a new wine. See, that's why these six water pots, it says there specifically, they were used for the Jewish purification, the custom of purification. That's significant. What it shows is the old order had run its course, and it's time now for a new one. So the water of Judaism is now going to become the wine of the Messianic kingdom.
It's the first miracle of Jesus. I'm your Messiah. I'm here. I'm the one who's going to bring the kingdom. Now, the significance of this for us today is, though, I think, why, I mean, certainly that's significant to us as well. Jesus is going to come and bring the kingdom someday. But also to us in a, a day-to-day level, wine is a biblical symbol of joy. And there's an old Jewish saying, without wine, there is no joy. And I think this sign points to the joy that Christ brings to a life, the joy of salvation. I mean, in, in Philippians 4.1, you know, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. In 1 Peter 1.8, Peter writes that we, we have joy unspeakable and full of glory. I just ask you this morning, is that true of your life? Because Jesus doesn't just bring joy, but he brings the abundance of joy. Jesus made 120 to 150 gallons of wine, way more than they needed speaks to the abundance of joy in our lives. But it's not just that Jesus brings joy and that he brings an abundance of joy, but it's that Jesus saves the best wine for last. The best wine comes last for us as God's people. Look, the, the, the wine of this world for all of us someday will run out. Uh, the, the banquet of the world eventually runs dry. But it's not so for the believer in Jesus Christ. God saves the best for us for last. It's like the old song says, Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. As the outer man is decaying, Paul tells us, the inner man is being renewed day by day. One of the saddest things in life is to see an older person who has no joy, who's grown sour and bitter and disillusioned, who knows nothing of the joy of fellowship with Christ. Here's what Adrian Rogers says. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. Even though I believe I love the Lord Jesus Christ as much now as I ever have in my life, I'm looking forward to loving Him more tomorrow. I'm enjoying the wine of joy that Jesus pours out. And listen to what he says. The devil gives his best first, but it gets increasingly bitter as you go along. That's the way life progresses for people who don't know Christ. They begin with the wonder of childhood. Then in their youth, there's vision and enthusiasm. In young adulthood, there's strength. But then in middle age, people begin to get wearied by the battle of life. And as the weariness of age sets in and things begin to deteriorate, they become bitter old people. And then he says, that's why the devil doesn't have any happy old people. The devil gives his wine up front the best. And eventually the wine runs out. Uh, Kent Hughes says this. This is a great quote I ran across this week. This is in his commentary on John's Gospel. He says, like these newlyweds, the universal experience of humanity apart from Christ is there comes a time when the wine runs out, when the joy and exhilaration of life are gone. No matter who you are, no matter what wines you have tested, there comes a time when the exhilaration and excitement of life wear out. For some it comes sooner, for others later. Often it's when life is at its very best that the wine runs out. We're full of health, money increases, friends multiply, we have an abundance to eat, plenty to drink, and a warm place to sleep, but somehow the wine fails and life loses its sparkle. It can happen in the teenage years. It's an epidemic, he says, in the college years. Let me just pause and just say this. Isn't it tragic today? How many young people? It seems like the wine's already run out. They're just in their teenage or college years. And he says this, it's endemic to the middle years. And ultimately, it catches everyone. That is what makes this miracle so important. Every one of us will find that if the exhilarations of life are our focus, failure is inevitable. 
And then he says this, Although the natural wines of life tend to lose their sparkle, the wine Christ gives, the joy we find in Him, increases as life goes on. I have found this to be true, Kent Hughes says. He is serving delicacies at my table now I knew nothing of in my early years of Christian life. Jesus is always giving us something better, and our taste is continually being refined. This is a promise, he says, of growth. So in this life, the Lord can continue to give us greater joy, but even more so in the life to come. We will banquet with Him in the coming kingdom, and the greatest joy awaits us. When we get to heaven someday, every one of us will say, it's true, Lord, you saved the best wine until now. And when you read this, you should feel in your heart this morning, it's good to know Him. I'm so glad I know uh, the Lord. One final thing here in this miracle, it's, it's, it's interesting. Did you notice in this story, we don't know who any of the other people in the story are. We don't know the bride. We don't know the bridegroom. We don't know the best man. Dr. William Hendrickson says that. He says, says, note everything else in this miracle is in the background. We don't know who the bride is. We don't know the bridegroom. We don't know their family. We don't know who the best man is. He says this, William Hendrickson, in the full light of day stands the Christ. All the rest is shadow. The important person here is Jesus. The focus is all on Him. Did you also notice at the end of this miracle, there's no statement about how the people responded to this sign. That's often the way it is with our Lord. Few people respond. But this sign did touch a few people because notice those last words in verse 11. His disciples believed in Him. To believe means to transfer your trust from yourself to someone else. To transfer your reliance, to rely upon Him. That's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. And I pray that every one of us here this morning have done that. That we've transferred our trust from ourselves and anything that we can do. And we're totally relying upon and trusting in Jesus uh, to be our Savior. That's what it means to believe in Him. So trust Him now and He'll give you joy and the best will be yet to come. There's an old story. It's been around a long time. I hadn't thought of this in many, many years, and I think maybe this is one of those stories that it's so old now it's become new again. So I hope you'll enjoy this this morning as we close. The writer says this, A woman who was diagnosed with a terminal illness and had been given three months to live. As she was getting her things in order, she contacted her pastor and asked him to come to her house to discuss some of her final wishes. She told him which song she wanted at her funeral and what verses she would like read and what outfit she wanted to be buried in, and she requested to be buried with her favorite Bible. As the pastor prepared to leave, the woman suddenly remembered something else, and she said, there's one more thing. And the pastor said, what's that? She said, I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. The pastor stood looking at the woman, not knowing quite what to say. The woman said, in all my years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, when the dishes of the main course were being cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, keep your fork. It was my favorite part of the meal because I knew something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie. She said, so when people see me in that casket with a fork in my hand and they ask, what's with the fork? I want you to tell them, keep your fork, the best is yet to come. But what a promise that is for us this morning. And I pray that all of us will commit in our lives to trust in the Lord Jesus and to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit so that this abundance of joy 
can fill our lives. And we can live with the hope for each one of us, wherever we are today, in every one of our lives, we can certainly say the best is yet to come for each one of us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come before you now this morning and we thank you for the truth of this scripture. And we pray, Father, that it will be real in our lives. I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never believed in Jesus, who's never transferred their trust to him for their salvation, for forgiveness of sins, that they might do that here this morning as they look to him and and are saved. And Father, for those of us who know you, we thank you that Jesus is the messianic bridegroom, that he's the one who brings the kingdom. We look forward to that day when he will come and we will feast with him in the kingdom. Father, in the meantime, we thank you for the joy that you give to us. Not just joy, but abundant joy. And the wine you give, you keep the best for last. Oh, Father, fill us with hope this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.